please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, the passage will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 4. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and sincerity, godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, uh, lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is God's word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to the book of 2 Corinthians as we pray together and dive into God's Word together this morning. This morning, Lord, we are grateful for your church, for drawing together a people for your glory, that in our gathering and in our midst you dwell with us and you reveal your great love to us. We pray that you would do that this morning in our midst. And that as we read these words together from the book of 2 Corinthians, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear about the gospel hope that we have in your love. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, most of us, I think, are probably already aware of what sociologists and other researchers have begun publishing articles and books to discuss. That the American people are more ideologically divided than at any time in modern history. A study published, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> a study published just a couple of months ago indicates that our nation is split on issues including the economy, racial justice, 
climate change, law enforcement, international engagement, and a long list of other issues. And I'm sure that that is hardly breaking news for you. But it's not just the range of topics that people disagree about. It's also that we consider many of these things to be central and of utmost importance. Polling from last year indicates that nine out of every 10 Americans thinks that victory for political opponents will lead to lasting harm for the United States. The issues that split us into camps are not inconsequential. We are dug in because we know that there are important things at stake, and we feel it everywhere, from conversations with coworkers to tense moments around the table with family on Thanksgiving. I'm not suggesting that this is the first time that Americans have disagreed over important issues, but research seems to confirm what many of us have felt for years, that we are developing a habit and getting better at it about assuming the worst about people that come to different conclusions about things that are important to us. And that division, of course, doesn't just include political issues. I follow a long list of pastors and theologians and Christian thinkers and writers on Twitter, and I am regularly amazed at how Christians will find things to argue with with one another. It doesn't take me very long as I scroll through my Twitter feed to get discouraged about how uncharitably we tend to look at those with whom we disagree, even those whom we call fellow Christians. Sociologists have lots of theories about why this trend has emerged, and most seem to focus on how social media has refined our habit and our skills for dividing from one another, but it is, of course, hardly a new habit. Since the fall, human relationships have been plagued by disagreement, division, and estrangement from one another. We are thinking creatures and fallen ones too, so we argue with one another and we debate and we bicker and then we gossip about those who come to different conclusions than we have about issues that we've established to be of utmost importance. And in churches across the country, that ideological division has not just crept into Christian fellowship, but crashed through the wall like a wrecking ball. It's a problem we feel and often don't know how to deal with. And in the first century, as the church was being established and built up, a similar problem had developed. When he wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia, Paul admonished the Christians there to think differently and to act differently toward one another as a result of Christ's saving work and the indwelling of the Spirit. He explained to them, you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Failure to love within Christian community is not just a failure to be like Christ. Paul connects it with damage to the church, biting and devouring and consuming one another. Paul understood the tendencies that reside in fallen human hearts to split and divide from one another, to attack and devour one another, and that those tendencies are hard to conquer even in the church. But he also understood what was at stake, that in the fellowship of believers in local churches throughout Galatia and everywhere else, in the community of Christ's people, the love of Christ is on display and the glory of God is revealed to a watching world. So he encouraged the people there to focus on Christ, on the patient enduring love that Christ has shown, and then to use the freedom that Christ has given them to be servants toward one another. 
It's an important theme in Paul's writing and something that characterized his own ministry. It is one of the, the issues that he treats with particular significance and importance as he writes to Christians in the city of Corinth. As in the book, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians makes very clear to us, the church there was anything but united. It was not a unified community of faith. It was a collection of cliques and factions that were constantly at each other's throats. The most visible symptom of their disunity is their allegiance to various teachers. Paul wrote in the opening of the book of 1 Corinthians that there was quarreling over whether people followed Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whether people should just claim allegiance to Christ. People were constantly jockeying for status and for prestige and for influence and for respect. And one way that they did that in the ancient world was by aligning with various teachers, which is a prominent custom in the city of Corinth. So the church was divided. The unity of their fellowship characterized more by biting and devouring than by love and service, and the witness of the church to unbelievers was compromised. Now, as Paul is writing the book of 2 Corinthians, the problem has evolved. What's at the heart of the divide in the church in Corinth now is not a dozen factions aligned with various teachers, but is really just boiled down to one central issue that has split the congregation in two, and it is over whether or not to trust and listen to Paul himself. Some in the church are loyal friends of Paul who submit to his apostolic authority and teaching. Others, perhaps a smaller but louder group of people within the church, are subverting his leadership and attacking his reputation. One way that they have sought to do this is by disparaging Paul for his humble life. Unlike the other prominent teachers of the day, Paul is neither wealthy nor is he trained in rhetoric and speech. He did not charge large sums of money for his teaching, unlike other teachers who had visited the city. And while that may seem like something that would ingratiate him to the people there, it actually had the opposite effect. It's a similar situation to a modern marketing strategy called prestige pricing, where the price of a product is increased just to give people the impression that it's of a higher quality. I fall for this all the time. Like when I'm shopping for groceries, I see two bottles of olive oil that might be the exact same inside, but if one of them costs twice as much as the other, my instincts tell me it must be twice as good. Paul didn't charge people for his teaching. Instead, he worked at a trade to support himself so he didn't have to collect from the people in Corinth. But that actually compounded the problem because as a laborer, he was ridiculed as unqualified. People figured that teachers that were worth listening to were those who never had to lift a finger or work with their hands because they sought patronage from the wealthy and elite in order to live pampered lives. Paul, on the other hand, is poor. He works to support himself. He doesn't act like people expected respected teachers to act. So there are two strikes against Paul. And as we'll see in the passage that we're reading this morning, there is now a third. And the Christians in Corinth are divided to the point of splitting the church over whether or not to listen to, it, to him. So Paul writes this letter, not because he cares about his own reputation or if he is respected, but because he cares about the health of the church and whether the message of the gospel is being preached and believed and lived out. He knows that in this community, the glory of God is revealed and enjoyed, and he wants that community to be healthy and undistracted from worship and advancing the kingdom. 
He addresses the division in Corinth, we'll see, first by reminding the church there of his conduct among them in verses 12 through 14, then by responding to a specific concern that they have in verses 15 through 22, and lastly by expressing his sincere love for them as brothers and sisters by faith in the remainder of our passage. Paul begins by contrasting himself with other teachers who have passed through Corinth, who he will later ironically call super-apostles in chapter 11. They are well-dressed, well-spoken, masters of rhetoric and politics that made them popular. Paul could have appealed to his own training as a scholar who had the Old Testament memorized. Or he could have pointed to his lifetime commitment of taking God's word so seriously, of being so dedicated to obeying it, that he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He could have talked about his lineage and his connection to important families in the history of God's people. If he wanted to compare resumes, he could have, and he would have won. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says this, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. His trustworthiness as a teacher is vindicated by his character and his dependency on the gospel himself. It is not with earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you, he says, He's choosing his words very carefully here, not directly attacking these other teachers in Corinth that these people are tempted to follow, but by reminding these people that there is a difference between Paul's ministry and theirs. He has acted toward these people with simplicity, with sincerity, and with the grace of God. That is his resume. Those are his credentials. As a pastor, this is a very comforting reminder. What the church needs most What will bring the unity that the church is called to embody is the message of hope in the gospel. I often feel unqualified, unprepared, and ill-equipped for the work of pastoral ministry. But Paul reminds me and all of us that what's essential is not complicated. It is the gospel. And the strength to do the work is not my own. It is the Lord's. He hasn't relied on the sort of things that appear strong in the world's eyes, but has relied on the strength of Christ, and his ministry among the people of Corinth has proved it to them. Paul knows that is what matters. That is what makes the difference. I've seen this in my own life. About 10 years ago, one of my best friends died suddenly in a car accident on the night before Thanksgiving. I awoke to a phone call delivering that news at 3 a.m., It was devastating. I was overwhelmed by the grief that I felt and still feel. And I remember a phone call from a good friend, a pastor, who wanted to check in on me the next day. And he didn't deliver some polished speech or have much to say at all, really. He just grieved with me and reminded me of the hope that we have in Christ and the promise of the gospel. Because in a situation like that, The promise of the gospel is the only thing that makes any difference at all, not theatrics. Just the simple, hope-filled truth that God has answered the brokenness of this world with mercy and the assurance of something better to come. That's what Paul is getting at here. He has been a true pastor to these people, not just an instructor. He has been a shepherd to them, not a professor. He has not come with sophisticated, flashy presentations He has preached Christ and Him crucified without fanfare and without exalting Himself. You know me, Paul is saying, and you know my heart. 
His hope for these people is the same as it has always been, that they would hear the pure gospel message, that they would come to understand and believe in it, and that they would grow in spiritual maturity. What he's saying hasn't changed, and how he's saying it hasn't changed, and what he hopes for hasn't changed, that they will fully understand what up till now they've only partially understood, so that a day will come when Paul will boast of their faith. This opening paragraph is bracketed by Paul's repeated use of the word boast. First, his boast is that his ministry has been carried out by grace, by the grace of God. And then again here in verse 14 where he talks about boasting about one another. Paul actually uses the word boast 29 times in the book of 2 Corinthians alone, which is over half of the times that it's used in the New Testament as a whole, probably because Paul knows that boasting is a particular problem in the city of Corinth. The people of this city have a prideful habit of trying to elevate themselves, to climb higher and higher on the social ladder, and to make sure that everyone else knows about it. So Paul speaks to that arrogant attitude by using the word boast differently. Rather than something used to advance social standing, for Paul, boasting is something Christians do to express their confidence either in the message of the gospel, in the faithfulness of fellow believers, or in the sufficiency of Christ himself. And Paul will use the word boast in all three of those situations throughout this book. It is not boasting that calls attention to oneself, but focuses praise and appreciation elsewhere. So it is a sort of humble boasting, if you'll forgive the oxymoron, whose ultimate sureness is in God himself. Paul's ministry in Corinth has been countercultural in the sense that he has turned it upside down, glorifying God rather than himself, drawing attention to God rather than to himself. He has not fit these people's expectations for what a teacher should be or how a teacher should present himself, but has revealed in his humble, simple service there the hope and the truth of the gospel. It is not served to make Paul a great name, but to boast in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because Paul's priority is not his own renown or his own reputation, but Christ's. Something that he demonstrates in the the way that he responds to criticism and attempts to attack his character At the heart of this debate that's taking place in Corinth is what Paul discusses next in verses 15 through 22. Reading this passage, it's initially a bit confusing. Reading any epistle is a bit like being in the room with someone who's on the phone. You can hear one half of the conversation, and oftentimes it's pretty easy to guess about what's happening on the other end of the line. The biblical genre of epistle works much the same way. We're reading one half of a conversation, and we have to read between the lines a little bit to get a sense of the whole situation. But with the book of 2 Corinthians, it's a little bit more complex than that. Most scholars agree that after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he went to the city to visit the people there. That visit was cut short. He left, and afterward, he wrote them another letter, which is now lost. Then, later, he wrote to them again, the book that we have and which we call 2 Corinthians. So we're hearing one half of a conversation, but before this conversation took place, there was a whole other visit, and apparently a whole other letter, which Paul seems to refer to even here in this passage, and which we can only make guesses about. But knowing that, knowing that context can actually help clarify some of the details that are here in this passage. He writes that he wanted to come and visit them again, referring, most scholars think, to a commitment he made to them in this lost letter. But circumstances changed. 
and he had to change his plans, and the visit was scrapped. It's a situation that Paul's critics have jumped on, accusing him of deception, duplicity, and unreliability. They accuse him of being double-minded, of having said yes, yes, and no, no at the same time as if out of two different sides of his mouth, and not caring about the Corinthians enough to follow through on his commitments to them. Last week, when we opened the book of 2 Corinthians, Pastor Bruce mentioned something about how the opening of this letter reminded him of our political environment, and I couldn't help thinking the same thing reading this passage. No matter what Paul does, his critics will find a way to spin it as an attack against him, a sign that he is either a fraud or a villain. Even something as trivial as changing his travel plans, delaying his visit to them, is immediately interpreted as a sign that he is a two-faced liar. I couldn't help thinking of a news story, let me put that in quotes, a news story that I saw a couple months ago about the vice president buying some pots and pans when she was in France. Her critics somehow managed to make that mundane purchase into an irrefutable sign that she hates America or that she does not care about American cookware manufacturers or that she is out of touch with everyday Americans who only buy their pans at Walmart. Now, regardless of how we may feel about the vice president's actual politics, the parallel with Paul here feels appropriate to me. For a church divided over whether to follow Paul, there are some who are going to use every single sliver of an opportunity to compromise or or to criticize and to attempt to uh, compromise his integrity and attempt to compromise his leadership. So Paul asks, was I vacillating when I wanted to visit you? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes and no at the same time? The grammatical construction of these questions here in Greek makes clear that Paul is emphasizing that the answer is no. He wasn't wishy-washy in his commitment. He meant what he said, and he hoped to come and spend time with the church in Corinth. But as he's already demonstrated to the Corinthians in his first letter, he makes plans that are contingent on God's will. He said in 1 Corinthians 4, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. He wasn't making an empty promise. He did desire to come, but the Lord had other plans and Paul had to change his own. And he declares the authenticity of his word and his commitment in the strongest possible language when he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He's telling them that his heart for them, his desire to come and visit them, is as sure as God's own faithfulness, that his desire to come and visit them is genuine, and that they are wrong if they think he's only making empty promises toward them. It's a strong way to put it. I might say too strong, but Paul doubles down in verse 23 when he calls on God to witness against him if what he's saying isn't true. He is serious, and he wants them to know it. So he, got, he calls on God to testify against him if he's lying. Ultimately, though, he doesn't make the strongest argument here based on his own word, asking them to trust that he really does love them. He doesn't make his strongest argument based solely on that. He points them instead to God's proven faithfulness to them. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, he writes, That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ultimately, Paul isn't saying, I know what I'm doing and it's for your good, so trust me here, though that is true. He's saying, in the midst of uncertainty, trust God 
whose promises are already kept, and whose plans never change, who has set his seal on his people and even given his spirit to indwell their hearts. Don't put your deepest trust in me. Put your trust in the one who will never break his word to you, the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes. Paul is making clear here that his first priority is to glorify Christ and to live in such a way that his life makes much of Christ and not himself. If he wanted to make much of himself, he would have come to to Corinth no matter what. He would have become like the other teachers there who fought for privileged positions, who amassed wealth and lived in comfort. He would have pandered to their preferences and told them what they wanted to hear and made himself look good. Instead, He risked his reputation and his relationship with them, changing his plans even though he knew it would lead to criticism and attack. And as he does this, Paul proves that he is the teacher that they need most. He is the teacher whose priority is not self-interest or self-advancement, but the gospel being preached and believed and spiritual maturity and the glory of Christ revealed. He demonstrates this elsewhere in other relationships he has with churches in other cities where he's willing to say hard things or even do unpopular things for the sake of obedience to Christ, the gospel, or even the good of the people that he is disappointing. The hope and the confidence of the Christian is not found in the teachers that we listen to, but in the Savior that they point us toward. Among the leaders in the church throughout history, there have perhaps been none who rival Paul, who lead more selflessly, follow Christ more faithfully, But even he says, even this most faithful of Christ's servants says, look to Christ in whom all of God's promises find their yes and in whom we are able to say amen. So the best teachers for Christ's people are not the most talented, the most impressive, the best speakers, or even the most educated, but those who will faithfully point to the gospel and to God's fulfilled promises in Christ. It is not the easy path. It is not the path to popularity or wealth, but it is the better one because its end is their spiritual health and deeper trust in Christ. And in the passage's final section, we see how difficult this situation and this process has truly been. He tells the people in Corinth that it was to spare them that he decided not to make this trip to Corinth as he had planned. He had received word from a friend who had passed through about what was happening in the city, about how Christ's was uh, about how the church, rather, was still divided and about how the people were bickering over petty things and his own ministry and faithfulness to God were being called into question, and he knew it was best to wait. Evidently, if he had gone as he originally planned, it would have been a disaster, and he knew it. What's impressive to me about this passage is that it would have been so much easier for Paul to just walk away or even to march down to Corinth and give those people a piece of his mind. Typically, those are the reactions that we expect when someone is attacked. Fight or flight, either to bail or to strike back. Paul doesn't do either one. He isn't interested in lording over the Corinthians. He wants them instead to have true and lasting joy that is rooted in firm and resilient faith. We can see that in the opening of chapter 2, that this has been a difficult process. Paul uses the word pain or painful five times in just these few verses. His last visit was painful, and another one would have been too. Relationships have been lost. Others are damaged or hanging on by a thread. 
And rather than abandoning these people or stoking his anger against them, he writes a letter that will pave the way for reconciliation. Scholars are divided over whether Paul is referring in verse 4 to the, to the lost letter or to this letter of 2 Corinthians. If it's a reference to the lost letter, it's a clue to us about what was in it, about Paul's pain, his anguish over what's happening in Corinth. But regardless, it is a clear indication that even though these people have caused him anguish and suffering and pain and stress and affliction, he is not giving up on them. He isn't going to walk away and leave them in their sin, and he isn't going to attack them in kind. And his refusal to abandon them, but to continue speaking the truth in love to them, pointing them to the gospel, is proof of his love for them. For Paul, in his relationship with the Corinthian church, nothing has changed. Years before, when he wrote him, when he wrote them, his first letter, he expressed his love for them in a similar way. In 1 Corinthians 4, he explained to them, to the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, refuse of all things. It's a sobering description of the apostolic ministry that God had given him and his companions and that he carried out among the people of Corinth. And it is a sobering description of the response that many, including the people of Corinth, had to him. But Paul writes in the very next verse, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It is his willingness to suffer their abuse and their criticism, their slander, and even their mockery that proves his deep and abiding love for them. Just as it was Christ's own willingness to suffer that proved his love for Paul and for us. In humility, he came to live among a people who had already rejected him as king, who had determined to go their own way and trust in other gods and in their own strength and wisdom. He came to live among these rebels to teach and proclaim the coming of his kingdom. But as he knew he would be, he was rejected again. He demonstrated his love throughout his ministry, showing compassion and concern for people in distress and need. But still he was denied, cast out, scorned, mocked, and eventually killed. Yet still he loved. Even with his dying breaths, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The love of Christ is nothing if not resilient. It is patient and long-suffering, and its aim is redemption, restoration, reconciliation, and joy. Christ was willing to admonish, to teach, to entreat, and to endure so that his people would be redeemed by such a love that it dies for those who drive nails through his hands and his feet. And Paul knows he has been loved by this Savior. Paul calls himself elsewhere the chief of sinners, whose life before meeting Christ was one of persecuting Christ and his church. He knows that he has been forgiven much and loved patiently, and because he knows that, and his very identity is defined by it, he is able to love patiently those who mock and scorn him now. Though the lesson of this passage, I think, is buried deep under lots of layers of context surrounding Paul and his complex relationship with an ancient church who were immersed in a culture of one-upsmanship concerning teachers and philosophers of the day, there is a lesson here buried underneath all that 
context. And I think it boils down to this. The patient love of Christ for you and me is what enables us and calls us to patient love for one another. It is the love of Christ that enables Paul to love this unhealthy church. And it is the love of Christ that he has been reminding them of that will enable them to love one another. That the community of Christ's people flourishes when it is filled with the humble reflection that each of us has been forgiven of more than we might ever ask to be for, uh, that we might ever be asked to forgive of someone else. When we are hurt or grieved by sin, we remember that in Christ we have been forgiven of far deeper grievances than we will ever have against a brother or sister. That our longing and search for justice to be done in answer to sin is a good and worthy pursuit here on earth, and that we should not overlook it, but that our attempts at justice are only a shadow of the justice and redemption to be revealed on the last day when we will understand what we've only glimpsed up till then. When we will boast, not of our accomplishments or our faithfulness or our reputation or the teachers that we followed, but in the power of the gospel and the saving work of Christ and the ways in which God worked through godly people to remind us of the truth. That is why when Peter asked Jesus about the forgiveness among brothers and sisters in faith, Jesus responded with a parable about a king who lent a fortune to a man who was unable to pay it back. The king forgave the debt, and the man went on his way. Later, that same man was owed a small amount by someone else, an even poorer man. And that poorer man was unable to repay his debt. But the man responded with wrath. He sent that poorer man to prison. And when the king heard about this, he was furious because he had forgiven a massive debt, and so now this man ought to be able to forgive a small one himself. Paul waded into the conflict and disarray of the Corinthian congregation, knowing that he would be attacked and abused and treated like the scum of the earth. But he does it because he wants these people to know the king's forgiveness and to rejoice in it so earnestly that the debts that they owe one another will seem trivial by comparison. He wants the community of faith at Corinth to be transformed by the gospel, made into a family rather than just an assembly that reveals the surpassing worth of the glory of God. And as I consider the wide and widening division between the people of our nation and in the American church, this is my hope as well. That though we may disagree, we do so with grace and brotherhood, united by bonds of undeserved grace and a Savior in whom all of God's promises have been kept. As I talk with other pastors, both here in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the country, I am grieved to hear about how churches are being divided and split, not over essential, inviolable doctrines, but over things like political ideology and affiliation, mask mandates, or music style. I count it one of God's kindest mercies to me that while as a pastor I have had to navigate conversations on each of those topics, none of them have turned into conflicts. That is not the case in many, perhaps even most, churches scattered across a nation that is splintered. So may we as Christ's people show abundant grace toward one another in matters of secondary importance while we rejoice together on matters of eternal significance. In our shared gospel hope, 
the forgiveness of sin and in the lordship of Christ as we strive to be a community of faith that reveals the glory of God. Would you pray with me? God, as we consider these words this morning from the book of 2 Corinthians, we ask that you would remind us again of your grace and your mercy, revealed and perfected in the life, atoning death, and resurrection of your Son. May we meditate on these things, thinking more of your grace toward us than of the offenses we may endure from other debtors to grace. Make us a people who are not divided but are unified as those redeemed, rejoicing, and proclaiming together the mercies of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.